Throughout my adult life, uh, I've had a number of accountability partners. Uh, there's been Leo, uh, Nate, uh, Jason, currently Phil. For about two years, though, my accountability partner was Adam. And I thought Adam was a great guy. And clearly, Adam thought I was also a great guy. Because he sang my praises to one of his friends, so much so that the friend contacted me asking if I could officiate his wedding. Now, I was incredibly humbled and honored. Uh, humbled because Adam heard my junk every single week and yet still sang my praises to someone. But then honored that someone would want me to be a part of probably the most important day of their life up to that point. But rather than just blurt out a yes because I was honored, I, I found myself asking the exact same question that I asked almost any couple who inquired if I could officiate their wedding. I just started saying, well, hey, would you guys be willing to do premarital counseling? It was a personal policy that any couple that I you know, stood on a stage and officiated their wedding, that I would spend four to six to eight weeks with them in premarital counseling. The studies just showed that couples that spend time in premarital counseling are just so much better than those who ignore it going into their marriage. And so because of, of this, I, I want to help couples. And so I said, no, would you guys do this? Suddenly Adam's friend kind of hemmed and hawed, and he says, you know, we're, we're really busy. I, I don't know that we can commit to that. He says, but we have an amazing relationship. I don't think we really need it. Now, a little red flag went off in my head. Like, oh, okay, Th this guy's got some blinders on. Because even healthy couples say, yeah, we we'd love to meet with someone and, and just help us get have an even better relationship. So I just began to ask some questions. Well, you know, tell me about this amazing relationship that you have. How'd you guys meet? You know, tell me about her. So he starts telling me how, how they met and, and their kind of journey of dating. And, and in the course of that, he says, you know, we moved in together about a year ago. Well, again, studies say that couples that cohabitate before marriage end up finding it much more difficult to have a lasting relationship. 50% uh, of couples who cohabitate don't even make it to the wedding day. And those who do make it to the wedding day, the rate of divorce among them is much higher than those who didn't live together before marriage. Now, I did just read recently that if a couple makes it to their seventh year of marriage, then they actually have the same rate of divorce as the general population. But to get to that seven-year mark, apparently there is a lot of stress. Uh, studies showed, emotional studies, saying that people reported higher levels of stress in cohabitation than in marriage. And so knowing some of this, and because I don't want to see people go through the pain of divorce and separation, I began to just, you know, counsel this guy, saying, hey, this isn't probably the best for you guys. And I began to roll out some of those statistics. And he stopped me. And he says, yeah, 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 I, I know the statistics. But that's not going to happen to us. I think there's something within human nature that when we hear stories or we hear the statistics of all these things, we somehow convince ourselves that we are a yeah, but. That we are an outlier. That, that that's not going to apply to us. I mean, how else do you explain how all the research that shows the negative effects of nicotine and tobacco, and yet the number of people that continue to smoke? I mean, and even if you don't smoke, I mean, we, we know the studies on sugar and, and how it causes obesity and what it does, and yet I haven't stopped eating ice cream. You know, like, we, we just give into this because we think, you know, that isn't going to affect me. And then I think we allow this stuff to slip into our spiritual journey as well. Where we, we hear certain things. We, we know that, you know, hey, people who read the Bible on a regular basis, their faith becomes so much more mature. 
But we, we justify and say, yeah, but I, I'm not a very strong reader. You know, that's just not who I am. And so we justify why we don't do that. Or, or we might read a book that talks about the importance of sharing our faith with other people. But we, we say, oh, I don't have a spiritual gift of evangelism. I'm, I'm just not good at that. that no, that, that's not for me. Or we, we hear someone talking about the importance of generosity and how God wants us to live this generous life. But we say, but yeah, but I, I can't even make ends meet. My, I, I'm under budget. Like, like it, this is not right. I, so I, I, I can't give. We, we hear the statistics, we know the stories, and yet we convince ourselves that, yeah, but that's not for me. By the way, Adam's uh, friend, he and his fiance didn't even make it to the wedding day. It turns out that the statistics and the stories are there for a reason. And that some of these things actually are for us and do apply to us. You see, today's passage out of Philippians is just a very general passage. And as you hear some of it, there might be a part of you that, that's going to push back and go, yeah, but that's not for me. Because you may think, well, you know, that's written for brand new believers. I've been following Jesus for a long time now. That's not for me. That's for them. And I hope they do it. It'll be wonderful for them. But I've moved on to deeper things. Or vice versa. We'll look at it and go, oh, that's hard. No, that must be for like the super Christians, people who've really followed Jesus for a long time. I, that's, that's not me. I'm still kind of new with this faith thing. And, and, and so I, I, I'm not quite ready for that yet. But I want you to remember, if you were with us in week one of this Genuine Joy series, we didn't start in the book of Philippians. We went to the book of Acts, where we saw Paul and his three friends go to the city of Philippi, and they planted the gospel. And as they planted the gospel, a church formed. And the church was formed with Lydia, a rich businesswoman, a poor slave girl who had been demonically possessed, and a middle-class jailer who was probably an ex-soldier. I mean, these three could not have been more different. And yet, here is Paul writing something to people just like them. And he's saying, this is for all of you. Lydia could not look at it and go, oh, those things are for the, the poor slave girl. Because I was a God-fearer. I was chasing after God. But she was clearly antagonistic against God as demon-possessed. And so this is, you know, God pursued her. And so these things are for her. Or, or the middle-class jailer can't sit there and go, oh, well, you know, these things are beyond me. This must be for Lydia. You know, she was already a God-fearer before she became a follower of Jesus. She's a lot further ahead of me. That, no, those things are for her. No. Paul is writing this to everyone who follows Jesus. It doesn't matter if you've been following Jesus for a hundred years or a hundred seconds. This is for you. And especially if you have not fully placed your faith in Jesus yet, you need to especially lean in and listen. Because when the day comes that your eyes are open and you realize that this whole thing is true, it's not just something that your parents talked about or a pastor talks about or your neighbors talk about. And you realize this is something that is true and God has for me. And when you give your life to Jesus, you now have an idea of some of what God calls you to because of what we're going to read here. Because what Paul wants for us is for us to obey God. Because obeying God is not a duty. It's not drudgery. It actually brings joy. There is a freedom that can be found as we obey God. Now, it's not going to be easy. As we're going to see today, it's hard. And Paul's going to give us ideas of how we can make it through, especially in a culture that's trying to pressure us, pressure us into not following God. 
how we can continue to make it through this journey and find that genuine joy I think we're all longing for. Now to give you a heads up, today some of you are going to have to give something up. And so to help us prepare for that, I'm going to ask you to do something that we've never done before. Don't know if we'll do this again, but we're going to pray. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, and I'm going to ask you to just hold your hands out, palm up. All right? So everyone, just close your eyes, palms out, up. And I want you to imagine right now the things that are weighing you down. Maybe it's your schedule, maybe it's your to-do list, maybe it's a, a relationship, maybe things aren't going well at work, whatever it is. And I, right now, I just want you to imagine that you're holding that. And I want you just to say something like this in your heart. God, right now, I give this to you. This is weighing me down. This is heavy. And I want to hear from you. And now I want you to just take your palms and turn them down. God, right now, we just place these things at your feet. You tell us to cast our burdens upon you, because your yoke is light. It is easy. So we put these things before you and your throne. And now I want you to turn your palms back up one last time. So God, now that our hands are empty, we want to receive from you. Would you pour into us things that we need to hear today? Help us, Father, to be ready for what you're going to say, because we want to be your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and open it up to Philippians chapter 2. We are up to verse 12 in this uh, uh, in, in the book, in, this, in Paul's letter. And you're going to notice that the first word here is the word therefore. Anytime you come into the scripture to the word therefore, you need to stop and say, what is that therefore? The therefore, all right? Because the word therefore is a connecting word. It basically says, the things that I'm about to say, the things I'm about to write are connected to what I just said. And so they, they are linked. So we need to stop and just take a moment to review. What was it that Paul just said? Well, last week we saw that he was longing for the church to experience unity, but he knew they could not have unity if they kept demanding their own way. And so that's why he said in verses three and four to consider the needs and interests of others before yourself. Because if you live this humble lifestyle, not, not thinking less of yourself, like I'm worthless, I'm, I'm horrible. No, but thinking of yourself less, like just putting the needs of others before you, it'll bring church unity. And the way he was helping them to realize this was to point to Jesus. Because Jesus, even though he was God, the most powerful, magnificent being in the entire universe, he set aside his rights as God to come down to take on human flesh, to live a sinless life, but to go and die a sinner's death. He died on the cross for you and for me. And so he showed incredible humility. So if Jesus could do that for us, Paul's basically saying, so go and do likewise. Go and be like Jesus. Live humbly with humility towards others, and it will change your relationship, and you will have joy. And then he says, so therefore, because Jesus died on the cross in a humble fashion, therefore, here's what you should do. Verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Any uh, middle school and high school students here, um, you ever had a moment when uh, you're doing something that maybe you shouldn't be doing and mom and dad walks in the room? Kind of an awkward moment, isn't it? Uh, you, you immediately put the phone away, you, you try to turn the channel, uh, you, you act like, you know, I didn't do this, and yet you're, you're, you're caught. Now, if mom or dad had been right there in the room with you the whole entire time, 
yeah, you wouldn't have been doing it. I mean, like they had told you, hey, don't be snapping your friend. And so you, you know, you wouldn't do that. You know, hey, I don't want you watching that type of program. So, you know, you, you wouldn't be watching that. It's easy to do the right thing when, when mom and dad aren't there. But when mom and dad leave, yeah, I, I'd really like to do what I want to do. Because I really like that game. I really like that person. I really like that show. Now, kids, I got, I got good news for you. When you grow up, all of that goes away. You will never have another moment where you have to worry about your boss walking in on you, do, you know, engaged on Facebook. You never have to worry about your spouse walking in and you being caught playing a game on your phone as you ignore the rest of the family. You don't ever have to worry about this ever again. You just need to grow up and these sort of behavior completely disappear. If you can't tell the sarcasm in my voice, this will plague you the rest of your life. Notice what Paul said. He says, I want you to always obey. Just so, as I know you would in my presence. Now remember, he's in jail. He's writing a letter to them. He says, I know you would obey if I was with you. Like, it'd be easier. I'd be there to help coach you and help you. I know you'd be doing the right thing. But notice, he says, but also much more in my absence. In other words, he doesn't want their faith to be based upon him, he wants their faith to be based upon Jesus. How much more are you to act more like a Christian when you're at church on Sunday, you're in your growth group, you, you do lunch with someone? But what about when you're alone at home? What, what about when you're at work with your friends who don't hold the same values as you? What about when you're at school and, and those friends start talking about those things? Will you obey in those moments? That's what Paul's starting to get at. And he begins to tell us what we need to do. He says, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now that is a scary phrase. Because on the surface, it looks like he's saying to, to work for your salvation. But that, that's the antithesis of the gospel that he just shared back in the previous section. As he talks about Jesus humbly dying on the cross for us, I mean, he says in his letter to the Romans, chapter 5, that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. I mean, Jesus loves us so much. He's not sitting there waiting for, waiting for us to clean up our act. It's not something that you have to work for your salvation. It's work out your salvation. If your spiritual eyes have been opened to the truth and power of the gospel, then you've been changed. And you now have this Holy Spirit. And so it's working this out, living it out. And notice how he says you're to live it out with fear and trembling. Again, not a scary part. It, it sounds like you have to live with this, this cowering terror of God. You're like, oh, if I just screw up, he's just going to go, that's it, you're out. You're done. Through with you. And, and, and that's not the case at all. Because again, God was not waiting for you to clean up your act when Jesus died for you. He died for you because you couldn't clean up your act. And so therefore, this isn't about you trying to prove something to God. It's you doing it because of who he is and what he's already done. That's why I like how the Net Bible translates this, the NET. The New English Translation puts this not as fear and trembling, but as awe and reverence. <laughs> when you look at God, you see Jesus, you see what he did for you, it leaves you in awe because you see the love that he has for you. And then when you realize that Jesus himself says, 
hey, no one can take my life. I lay it down willingly, and I can take it back up again. And then he pulls it off. You realize he has such power. Whoa, you're even in more awe. You want to give reverence to this guy. So this is about a healthy, holy fear, not a terror, cowering, I can't stand being around this God type of fear. And the trembling is not a, oh no, he's going to kill me off. It's a trembling because this God loves me and accepts me and forgives me. And so it's actually us being drawn to him. And because of who he is, now we want to live out our faith. We want to work out our own salvation. And just so you know that you don't need to be scared of God, notice verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I think there's a, a thought trap that some of us fall into. And the reason I think this is because this is a trap that I fell into. I, I used to believe that you were saved through Jesus. You found salvation through the cross. But after that, you were kind of on your own. Like you, you had to just, you know, you had to read your Bible. You had to pray. You had to do all these things to like somehow prove to God or, or to be more sanctified. And that's why I absolutely love verse 13. Because it's not you who has all the responsibility to do it. It says that it is God who works in you. In other words, he has not abandoned you. In fact, when Jesus was on earth, he tells his disciples, hey, I'm, I'm going to be taken off. And the guys start like whining and crying. Whoa, 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 wait, Jesus, no, we, we, we love you. We respect you. We learn so much from you. You're, you're the Messiah. We want to be with you forever. And Jesus is like, no, guys, time out. It's better for you that I go away because then I can send my spirit, the paraclete, the advocate, the counselor, the Holy Spirit who will come to you and dwell within you and he will remind you of everything I taught you and he will empower you to do even greater things than I have done. God doesn't leave us alone. He's put his Holy Spirit in us. Ephesians 1 tells us that he seals us with the Holy Spirit. It's like he brands us, and that brand doesn't just mark us as belonging to him, but empowers us to accomplish the mission that he's given us. So he's going to work in you. And notice what it says. He's going to give you the will, so the motivation, and then also the, the work, the strength. And some of you might be, if you're, if you're honest, you may be saying, you know, so I really don't have much motivation right now. Now you know what your prayer needs to be. Say, okay, God, you, you tell me in Philippians 2.13 that it's you who works in me to give me both the will and the work. God, I, I don't have the will. I don't have the motivation. Would you give that to me? Or maybe you have the motivation. You want to live this way for God, but you just can't seem to defeat the addiction. You keep falling into the same thought patterns. Those same type of words just keep coming out of your mouth. And you're so frustrated. Like, God, I don't want to be this type of person. You feel like Paul in Romans 7. The things I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Well, now you know your prayer. God, I have the motivation. I, you've given me the will, but I'm not seeing it accomplished. Would you help me? Give me the strength. Would you remind me in the moment when I'm about to slip and screw up again? Will you help me out? Now you know what to pray. Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Man, that is hard. Unless you're Hannah. Hannah was a little girl that Leanne and I, before we ever had kids, we were not just house-sitting, we were taking care of these three kids. And Hannah, I think, was about four years old. 
And I was not there. Leanne, Leanne was there. She says that she walks into Hannah's bedroom and Hannah is coloring on the wall. And Leanne immediately is like, no, Hannah, no, no. And she's thinking like, oh, what are her parents going to think? You know, I've failed as a substitute mother. And so she, she starts getting after Hannah. Hannah, you can't color on the walls. Now, most little kids would like break down, start crying. And then you tell them, hey, we're going to have to wash the wall. No, that's not fair. You hate me. Why are you making me do this? And not Hannah. Hannah drops her head and says, I'm sorry, Miss Leanne, but I'll help you wash it. And then just washes and sings. I mean, like nothing brought this kid down. Now, for us normal people, we find a moment that we don't like and we grumble and complain about it. I found myself jumping on Twitter while watching the Kansas City Royals game because they made a base running mistake. I had to complain to someone, so I just cast it out there where no one would hear. This is what we do. We complain, we grumble, we argue, we dispute. It's the way of the world. In case you haven't noticed, this is how our politics is going. It's how a lot of work cultures are. It's even how a lot of families operate. And yet Paul is sitting there saying, do nothing grumbling everything everything you do in life whether at work at home at school whatever you do do it without complaining do it without arguing why, why is he telling us this because when you complain you're actually saying to a sovereign god i don't think you're in control i don't think you're getting this one right i don't know if you're actually good i don't know if i can trust you God wants to be our heavenly daddy. He wants to be able to throw us in the air and we trust him to catch us and bring us down. That's why we aren't to complain. That's why we're not to grumble against him, to dispute what the situation he's put us in, to instead live with a calm peace and a genuine joy in him. Because when we do, notice what Paul says next, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Uh, this week I uh, went on Right Now Media. Um, I go there every once in a while because they'll, you know, they'll have different things, uh, resources that we can use. And uh, I was trying to find some things that I could share with you. And in fact, I would encourage you to go listen to some of the Matt Chandler teaching from Philippians. He does a fantastic job. But I also had noticed that they were advertising that they were going to be releasing another video series on Philippians this time by a uh, professor named Michael DeFazio. He's a professor at Ozark Christian College. I'm not familiar with Mike uh, or Michael. And I uh, was listening to it, and he was describing this section right here. And he says that it is dripping with Old Testament imagery. Like Paul put so much about Israel into this. And, and Michael starts pulling out these verses. Uh, the, the first one there, you notice that phrase there, a crooked and twisted generation. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter uh, 32, verse 5. This is Moses writing, and he's writing about the Israelite people. Remember, this, these people got rescued out of Egypt where they were slaves, brings them out, they disobeyed God, they didn't trust him, they built that golden idol, and so God's going to have them now wander the wilderness for 40 years, and they do nothing but complain and whine for the 40 years. Right? They did not trust that God could help them conquer the giants that were in the promised land. So God's like, all right, you're going to wait for those giants to die out? And I'm going to wait for you to die out, and your children will get to inherit this. And so this is what Moses says about these people. He says, they, the people, have dealt corruptly with God. They grumbled, 
They disputed, they complained, they argued, they dealt corruptly with him. So therefore, they are no longer his children because they are blemished. And God created the Jewish people. And, and so that would make him their father. He created them through Abraham. And yet they did not trust him. They did not follow him. And so they became blemished and acted as though they weren't his children. And notice how Moses then describes them. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Paul does not want you to be part of that crooked and twisted generation. And he knows the only way for that to happen is for you to not grumble, to not complain, to instead trust God and to surrender to him because he is good. And even though the circumstance is uncomfortable, even though you don't like what's going on, you can trust him. So don't be part of the crooked generation. The, the other thing we notice there in Philippians, the, the last phrase there, he says that, that you would shine as lights in the world. Uh, Michael said that that comes from Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Daniel 12, 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth, in other words, those who have died, right, those who sleep in the dust of the earth, shall awake. So he's talking about the resurrection at the end of all time. Right? They shall awake, some to everlasting life, so eternity with Christ in heaven, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. He's talking about hell. And then verse 3, And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, if you're paying attention, you may be saying, well, wait, Aaron, that's talking about stars. Paul said lights in the world. Well, that's true. In the Greek, it, it could be translated lights in the world. The ESV, which I'm using and use most weeks, is, is accurate there. However, it can also just as faithfully, just as accurately be translated stars in the universe. Maybe you have a translation that has that. And I love that picture. Stars in the universe. Uh, there's a guy by the name of uh, Seth Godin. He's a famous kind of marketing business uh, blogger. And every once in a while, he'll take a bunch of his blog posts, put them together in a book. And many, many years ago, he wrote a book called The Purple Cow. Uh, the idea was that he was driving through France. And at first, the city boy was just in awe of the countryside of France. And there are all these brown cows dotting the landscape. And he said it was just so picturesque. He just kept wanting to stop and take a picture and have it turned into a painting. But then he said after about an hour or two, it, it wore off. It, it wasn't as picturesque. It just became normal. Everything just blended into the background. And then he said it dawned on him. What if he was driving along and out of the middle of all these brown cows, he saw a purple cow? Just that would stand out. So his book is about how to make your business a purple cow and make it stand out from everyone else. I think Paul is saying some of the same things. But instead of using the language of a purple cow, he wants you to shine like stars in the universe. Because when you get away from a city and all of its light pollution, and on a clear night you look up and you see the stars, they stand out. It's so beautiful. It's so moving. And I think in our cricket and twisted generation world, where it's all about me and we argue and complain, to have someone who doesn't live that way, they stand out. It's, it's different. It's noticed. Now, the world's trying to press you into its mold, but if you continue to follow after Christ and be put into the image of Jesus, you stand out like a star in the universe. You become a purple cow. But that's hard. It is so hard when everyone around you is trying to get you into their mold. 
And that is so different than the mold that God has for us. That's why Paul says this in verse 16, the first phrase, holding fast to the word of life. How do you become this star in the universe, this light in the world? How do you live without grumbling and complaining? How do you live differently so that you're blameless children, not part of the crooked and twisted generation? You hold fast to the word of life. All right, what does that mean, though? I mean, that's a nice, beautiful, poetical phrase, but what does it really mean? I think we got to figure out what is this word of life. And if you go to John chapter 1 or to John's uh, first epistle, 1 John chapter 1, you notice that the word of life is not a what, it's a who. That it's Jesus. Because in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word took on flesh and dwelt among men, and that word was the life and light of men full of grace and truth. It's Jesus. And so if you want to be able to live this life without grumbling and disputing, if, if you want to be able to be like a star that shines in the universe, if you want to live this type of life, to find joy through obedience, you hold fast to Jesus. So how do you do that? Well, we, we talk about this fairly frequently. I think it's basic spiritual discipline. So it's holding fast to Christ through the word. I mean, the scriptures describe Jesus. I mean, the Old Testament is always prophesying about the coming of the Messiah. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John present us Jesus, and then the epistles and the rest keep pointing back to Jesus in the Gospel. So get into the scriptures. I, I think it's a prayer. As you continue to hold on to Christ, you, you continue to, this dialogue, this conversation with him. And I think it's meeting with other believers. But I think it's also eliminating things that might weaken your grip. There might be things that you're holding on to that aren't letting you truly hold on fast to the word of life. What, what is that? Is it a substance? Is it a type of music? Is it a certain TV show? Certain activities? Is it a certain person? Now, don't get me wrong. Some of these things are actually good. But when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, now it's a bad thing. And it's keeping you from the thing that really, truly will bring you that genuine joy. So sometimes to hold fast to the word of life, it means we actually have to let go of something else. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Let's go ahead and finish the, the section. So then Paul goes on. He says, So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, we've already heard Paul back in chapter 1 say that he's in prison. Right? It, it's not comfortable. Jake taught us how, he found, how Paul found joy in suffering. And we even heard how, because of the gospel, Paul was willing to give his life for this. And so if, even if it meant he died in prison then hey, he was okay with that. Because remember, to live with Christ and to die was gain. And so he brings that imagery back up here. But instead of just talking about his life, he uses this image of a drink offering. In the Old Testament, there were multiple offerings that the Jewish people brought before God through the priests. Sometimes it was a grain offering which they would burn. Uh, sometimes it was an animal that would be sacrificed. The blood would be sprinkled in, in various places and, and certain things done with it. But sometimes there was a drink offering. And, and you would take this glass of usually wine and you would pour it out. It's this idea that I could have kept it for myself, but I'm giving it to God. 
But I think it went even a step beyond that. I think Paul is using this to say, my life, like everything that's been poured into me, I have poured out for you upon the sacrifice of your faith. Paul wanted nothing more than for the Philippians to find this genuine joy in Jesus. And he knew that joy would come as they obeyed. Because this obedience wasn't to beat them down, it was actually to lift them up to help draw them out of a crooked and twisted generation, that they would shine as stars in the universe and true find true peace and contentment in Christ. And he said, even if it means that I never get out of this prison, even if it means my life ends here, to know that you living for Christ means it was worth it all. Now, I understand Paul at this part. No, I, I've never been in prison. Well, not as a prisoner. I've been in a prison to visit, but you know, I, I've never been a prisoner like Paul. I have. I, I don't feel like my life is towards the end. I don't feel like I'm being poured out. But I understand his longing. Because my longing is for you to find this joy in Jesus. I, my last, the last thing I want is for us to just have a gathering on Sunday mornings and we call it good. Or for us to just go and do a bunch of nice things in the community and we make ourselves feel good about ourselves. What I long is for you to have a joy in Jesus, to see him continuing to work in you. That's why we say it's not just to find Jesus, we want to follow him. And that's why our image out of Ezekiel 47 is this river where we continue to go deeper and deeper into the river to the point where we are in over our heads, we can't touch bottom, and Jesus is in control. That is what I long you. And that's why I have to ask, what are you holding on to that is keeping you from holding fast to the word of life? What is it there, there that you might need to eliminate so that your hands are open and free to truly take hold of that which matters? What excuses are you making for why you don't need to be in the word? For why you, you don't need to pray. For why you don't need to be part of a growth group. For why you can engage in certain activities. What excuses are you making that keeps Jesus kind of the side thing? That you just go to every once in a while, but I'm just going to live my life for me. Today, I want to encourage you. Let go of that so that your hands are free to hold on to that which really matters. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm trying to guilt you into something, trying to manipulate you. And so I'm going to confess how this message has hit me. I realize that as a pastor who prepares a sermon most every week, that I'm in the Bible regularly. But I made a decision a long, long time ago that I would never make my sole means of being in the Scriptures so that I could turn around and teach it to someone else. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. This has been good. I've had a really good week. Like, I love getting into this and, and working through it. And, and often God works really, really deeply in me. So it's worthwhile, and I will keep doing it. But I don't want this to be the only time I'm in the Scripture. Otherwise, this is going to probably bad timing for a joke, but it makes me feel like a bird who regurgitates and then feeds the, the others. That's not who I want to be, even though that's my last name. All right, timing was bad, but oh well. You see, I think that for me to be the pastor God calls me to be, I have to have this relationship with God. But if my relationship with him is merely getting what I can to then give to you, 
I am not developing the relationship with him directly myself. For me to be the husband I think God called me to be, to be the daddy that I'm called to be, and to be the pastor I'm called to be, I need to have this growing, vibrant relationship myself. Some days, I don't always make it to the scripture for myself. I make it to work on a message, but I haven't been getting into it just for my own dialogue with God, for me to be learning and receiving from him for me. As I worked on my message this week, I realized I rarely ever miss a day on Twitter. Which is really sad. Because the average life of a tweet is 19 minutes. And yet I am putting value in finding these 19-minute tweets over the value of the eternal word of God. You talk about messed up. So I did what I didn't think I'd be able to do yesterday. Deleted Twitter off my phone. It was hard. I couldn't believe how hard it was. Like my thumb's hovering. Okay, and I justify why I can keep this. Oh, I, I can be just more self-disciplined. I get. And then I realized I'd be a huge hypocrite. Because I long for you to find this genuine joy in Jesus that you would let go of the things that are keeping you from having a strong spiritual grip on Christ. And if I'm not willing to do it myself, I can't leave you. So I'm just letting you know, here's my commitment. I'm keeping the app deleted all this week. I take off on vacation next week, and I'm keeping it off for two weeks I'm gone. So I'm not letting myself put it back on until the end of June, hoping that purging myself 19-minute tweets free me up to spend more time with my God. What is it you need to give up? What is it you need to stop making excuses about? That's what I want us to do over confession, I mean over communion. So right now I'm going to invite the uh, band to come up here. And here's, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to let them play quietly, no singing. And during that time, it's your chance to confess. To simply just confess to God, God, here's, here's what I'm holding on to, and it's not you. Is there something that you've been grumbling and complaining about that you need to release to God and say, God, I surrender this? Is there something in, in the way you've been thinking or certain things you've been ingesting, you know, through sight, maybe movies or through your ears and certain types of music that you know that those in and of themselves aren't evil and wrong, but it's not helping you hold fast to Jesus. So I just want right now to be a time of surrender, a time of confession. So as they play, let's just take that time. They'll just take like 30 seconds, a minute, but this is your time to go before God. And then when they're, when they start singing, that's your cue. But if you want to, you can include these elements today. Because that bread reminds us that Jesus allowed his body to have nails pierced through it, crown of thorns upon his head, a whip shredded across his back. Because God's wrath was coming against sin. Jesus absorbed it for us. And when we pick up that cup, we're reminded his blood was shed for us. Because it's through the shedding of blood that the forgiveness of sins comes. So as we take and drink and bring this into ourselves, we're saying, this is my story. Jesus, you paid it all for me. You humbly went to the cross. So please forgive me for holding on to these other things. So right now, Father, I just pray that your spirit would work. These are your people. They're your children. You know their stories far better than I. You love them far deeper than I ever could. You have bigger dreams for them than I could ever have. 
So that's why right now, Father, I just I turn it over to you. This is your church. These are your people. I've done my part. God, it's all for you. So right now, Holy Spirit, I pray that you move in and bring conviction where it needs to be. You give us the guts to confess it, to accept your forgiveness, to move into freedom. God, would you just work right now in us, continuing to transform us into those blameless children who love like Jesus loves and live like Jesus loves.